Hey everyone, welcome back to Wild and Unprotected, episode four. My name is Ethan Lehman, and I'm here with my co-host, Koji Samalde. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. On today's episode, we have Dr. Ian Kerr of Ocean Alliance and the creator of Snotbot. Strap on your seatbelts, because it's going to be a wild ride. Hey everyone, welcome back to Wild and Unprotected, a podcast brought to you by Wildscape Productions. Today we have an amazing guest by the name of Dr. Ian Kerr with the Ocean Alliance and something special called Snotbot as well, which we'll dive into further. Ian, thank you for joining us. I can call you Ian, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no. A real pleasure. Great to be chatting with you guys and I appreciate what you're doing, sort of getting the stories out there, capturing hearts and minds. And having a little fun. And that's right, that's right. Well, that's right. Well, how can you not have fun with a <laughs> drone called Snotbot? But later, I understand. <laughs> well, once again, welcome to the show. We're super glad to have you. Um, for the viewers out there and the audience listening, you know, this is something that we are so proud of. And to have someone like Dr. Ian Kerr on our show is incredible. And we can't wait to dive in. So, Let's just go ahead and um, pick your brain a little bit. Tell us about, you know, the education side of what you're doing with Ocean Alliance. And, um, and, then, and then from there, we can kind of piggyback into the early years of your career, if you don't mind. Well, absolutely. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, um, sort of saving the wild world and a bigger picture, you know, you can only make rational decisions based on data. So we need to collect that data. And whether it be whales or rhinos or whatever. And certainly the problem with collecting data on marine mammals is, um, if you're collecting data on a rhino, you know, your, your Land Rover can't sink. You don't get seasick. And when you approach the rhino, it doesn't disappear beneath the Serengeti and reappear five miles away. So studying whales is difficult and it, and it can be an expensive industry. At the same time, you know, scientific data alone will not save the wild world. You know, we need to capture hearts and minds. We need to capture, you know, the imagination of our youth. And ultimately, you know, the more people we can get involved in sort of wildlife conservation, even on a, a monthly, weekly, or daily basis, the more likely it is we will, says he, change the world. That's amazing. Um it's it's really important, like you said, to capture the young hearts and minds, and it feels like it's more difficult than ever due to social media and almost a content barrier. The way that we interest, you know, those young hearts and minds is more difficult than ever. It seems like there's a, there's a higher bar set to get their attention. Well, that's right, and and you know, even a challenge we have is you know you don't want to demean the science, but at the same time you you don't want it 
too boring. I mean, there is almost a stereotype of a scientist being a white male in a white coat with pen protectors. And I hope by the end of this conversation, you realize certainly I'm nothing like that. And the opportunities are out there for as diverse an audience or participation as one can imagine. Um, so let's, let's talk about the earlier years of your career. Um, and what got you started into conservation and, and uh, Ocean Alliance? You know, I was really, or I, I am what you could almost call a generalist, you know, master of nothing, but good at a bunch of things. And it, it meant even through my early 30s, I was still looking to find my place in the world. You know, I tried a bunch of different jobs, but I just couldn't seem to find a fit. And it was really by chance, you know, I, uh, I met the founder of Ocean Alliance, a guy called Roger Payne, who's best known for discovering that humpback whales sing songs in the 70s. And I met him on a beach in Argentina, and he sort of introduced me to the world of whales and whale conservation. And I really thought here is a place where I could put a diverse skill set to use, you know, so rather than a generalist being a liability, a generalist was an asset. I could help with the stories. I could help with the science. I could help with the maintenance. You know, I could help captain the research vessels. So I really felt that that um, this particular field sort of fit my skill set. And when did that start? Well, for me, boy, that was like 32 years ago. So you guys do the math. I probably guess in the late 80s, you know, um, and I did start as a volunteer. I started as a volunteer and and basically, I guess, hopefully I, I would say made myself valuable to the organization. So they hired me and then just sort of worked my way up through the organization to my current position. I would say that worked out pretty well. You uh, you climbed the ladder, I would say, pretty quickly from the timeline that I've seen. Yeah, no, no and it has. I think I – think, um, you know, some people don't take the don't look at, at a nonprofit like as a business model with the idea that you're just trying to do good. People maybe didn't used to in the 80s, at least potentially take it as seriously, you know, uh, as one should. And I like to think that that's what I've, I've tried to do here is find that balance. At the end of the day, we're running a business and a business is helping to sort of save the wild world. But even so, it's got to be a business. It's got to be a cost-benefit analysis, profit and loss, you know, productivity. And um, and it's an interesting one, particularly when you're dealing with wildlife because the wildlife doesn't turn around every Thursday and say, good job, you know, thank you for saving my brother or sister, you know. Yeah, and that's something you don't get to hear very often when it comes to wildlife conservation is there is a huge business side of things. And business minds are very much needed in this space. That's right. And there's an interesting one because, you know, when you look at employee compensation for, you know, I'll make it up, Bank of America or Ford or GM, you can be sure their their CEOs are sort of earning hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars a year. And sometimes it, it's hard to, you know, attract good people to the nonprofit arena. I mean, I'm not going to leave, but I'm sure I could go pretty much anywhere else and earn double the salary I earn now. But for me, at least, you know, one, I've got the lifestyle, you know, I get to do incredible things. And two, you know, I'm not against any of those other jobs I said, but me personally, 
I see enormous value in in going to sleep every night knowing, you know, I, I sort of been part of the solution, let's say, as against part of the problem with the environmental crisis. That's a good one. So one thing we've heard you say, um, I don't take myself seriously, but I take the work seriously. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, the biggest challenge humanity faces is actually the wild world. And a lot of people don't realize that. You know, the oceans cover two thirds of the planet. They're the largest mediating force on this planet. We need healthy oceans. Our catchphrase is healthy whales, healthy hum healthy oceans, healthy humans. And in 50 years or 100 years time, they won't talk about some political case about some some cheating or whatever. They'll be talking about what did humanity do to help conserve the wild world? What matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat decision, it will be what did we do? And currently, we're not doing enough. So I really, again, the environmental crisis we face is the biggest crisis humanity will ever face. Most people don't get that. They, you know, that said, you know, if you go around preaching that to people, you're not going to engage them. And I actually think my job is exciting. I think I'm living like a, you know, a, a Nancy Drew, Indiana Jones sort of Carl Sagan adventure. So how lucky am I? And I think at the end of the day, you know, lifestyle is part of it. But but how? And in fact, lifestyle is all of it. How we live our daily lives affect the environment. And a lot of people, I think, a lot of environmental groups have sort of raised money by saying, we're doomed if we do this, and we're doomed if we don't do that. And while that may be the case in certain cases, to me, it's about, you know, how do you want to be involved in the most exciting challenge that humanity has ever faced? Exactly. You know, something that keeps recurring in, in each of our podcast episodes is, um, you know, being the luckiest to do what you do. Um, that's the fourth time we've heard it now. And, you know, I, I think it's incredible to see, you know, multiple walks of life to be able to talk about what they do, why they do it and why they love it, but to perceive it from a, from a luck perspective. I don't think it's luck. I think it's, it lies within your heart that you wanted to do such a thing and look at you doing it, you know, doing it before I was even born before Ethan was even born. And here we are talking to you about it. So, I think we're the lucky ones, to be honest. <laughs> well, thank you, Koji. But I mean, that's the attitude. That's the attitude. And I think, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I've had a privileged position. Do you know what I mean? But it goes back to what's important to you in your life. And I think all of us need to just reflect a little bit if an extra five grand a year is really going to make that much of a difference as against volunteering with a nonprofit, getting out, swimming with whales, whatever it might be, you know dancing with um, dolphins, you tell me. Yeah, I feel like most people don't realize some of the things that you get to do in your line of work. And this this phrase of getting paid in sunshine um, has kind of reoccurred in my head since we started this conversation. So what are some of the places that you've been able to go because of this line of work? Yeah, and no, certainly, um, th th I mean, that's an interesting one because sort of Entry to, to the type of places that I go with the permission I go does not come easy. You know, I've been doing this 32 years and probably for 15 years, you know, the access was not as easy. But when you go to places like the Galapagos, you know, huge areas are restricted unless you happen to be a wildlife biologist. So you get to go to the places where 
they they don't allow people to go because they're trying to conserve it. And I get to interact with different species, you know, from blind pink dolphins in the Amazon River to blue whales with the with lungs the size of a VW. You know what I mean? So it's pretty exciting. And I think I think you know maybe part of today's message too is just to try to get people to open their eyes to how exciting nature is. I mean, just this morning I was having breakfast watching some birds on the bird feeder and how they were all interacting. And I think for me, even then, I just had to stop for a minute, stop, look, and listen, because, you know, um, the wild world at every level is is um, it's just amazing, or well, to me at least. Yeah, and I think it's amazing to a lot of people. I just think there's, like you said earlier, there's such a nuance to the current thought process of what science is who science is at this point and how to get involved um so that's that's a really good point you know seeing that it it takes a lot of work and we're moving forward with it and people need to kind of stop and smell the roses yeah but i mean almost but here's another way for you know to go back on what i said earlier though you could look at us right now facing the biggest challenge humanity's ever faced and with that, you've got two choices. Choice number one is, oh, man, you know what? We're doomed, and I'm going to give up, and I'm going to dig a hole and bury my head. Or you can say, what an opportunity. What an opportunity. I'm a musician. I'm going to make music about this. You know, this crisis, I'm an engineer. I'm going to build a machine that will help save the world. Do you know what I mean? We have a choice right now. Is, is this threat, you know, an opportunity or paralysis? And I think it's an opportunity. And I think if we, you know, if we like to look at my lifestyle and the places I go and the work that I do, you know what I mean? What an adventure. You know, some people raise millions of dollars so they can go out and do this stuff. And then when they get there, they often talk to people like me. Do you know what I mean? And I think that going back to that idea of the white male in a, a white coat with a pen protector now, you know, with, with, with the internet, with technology and the way the world is evolving, anybody can be a wildlife biologist. Anybody can help the wild world. I mean, I almost guarantee, hopefully, there's somebody listening today that's going to have some idea that, wow, I could do that. You know, I, I, I happen to be a, I'm trying to make something up here. I happen to be a, a, you know, a, a, a drone pilot that's also good at, um, uh, you know, Lego. I don't know. But do, do you know what I mean? Maybe I can make something. So I think that's what's exciting is we're breaking the molds. Do you know what I mean? And and kids like to break the molds. You guys are breaking the molds. So that, let's keep doing that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, too. Um, I mean, I'm covered in tattoos. I do not look like any conservationist or, you know, marine biologist or biologist in general. Um, and it's a passion of mine and it's a passion of mine to also, I, I actually, I have a tattoo around the bottom of my left leg. That's this giant chain that's being broken, you know, breaking the chain. I'm, I'm obsessed with that because the only way you make progress is to get out of habit and move forward. So breaking that mold is incredibly important. And I, I hope that what we're doing and you know, what you're doing is inspiring that next, you know, generation to break that and move past it exactly by the way you you've opened another door for me which is dangerous but you know i think the chain is a very good symbol and i'm going to flip it though because 
a lot of people don't seem to really appreciate what we call the interdependence of species. You know, before humanity came along, you know, we had this great sort of biosphere that is planet Earth with, you know, the worms doing this, the ants doing that, the bees doing that. And we are now slowly learning that if you take a link out of the chain, it doesn't work anymore. I mean, I live in a fishing town and it's real simple. And if you said to a fisherman, I'm going to take a link out of your anchor chain, well, the anchor chain wouldn't work. You know, it's, it's, it's like common sense. And the reality is it's sort of understanding that interdependence of species. And yeah, you don't have to love whales, but I'm telling you, whales are important to humanity. And in fact, we'll start degrading the level of conversation here, as is my way. And that's in part because of whale feces. You know, whale feces is feeding phytoplankton that is driven by the sun. You know, the, the primary producer on planet Earth or planet as I ocean, as I like to think of it, is phytoplankton. And that phytoplankton needs fertilizer when it comes from whales. And there was a report recently by the International Monetary Fund where they said they believe that over the last four or five decades, maybe a bit more, um, ocean productivity has been diminished because we killed so many whales. So there it is, black and simple. You don't have to care about whales. You don't have to care about whale, spe whale feces, but you can try to understand how sort of biologically everything's linked. And, you know, if you take this species out of the food chain, there's going to be, you know, another response somewhere else. But that then speaks to the opportunities to get involved. You know, it doesn't have to be whales. It can be nudibranches or slugs or worms or ants or snakes or mm -hmm. whatever's in your backyard. <laughs> what, That's right. There whatever's you in Let's your backyard. Start, you start in your backyard. I mean, so there's a study here in, so I live in Tampa Bay. Um, there's a study where we, across nine states in Florida, sorry, nine cities in Florida from Pensacola all the way around the bend down back up to Jacksonville, they've done uh, studies on, on the redfish species. And they've taken samples of blood from the redfish species from these nine different cities. And each of these, um, these samples had up to nine to 15 different uh, pharmaceutical drugs in this in these redfish and this is all across the state this isn't just saying like hey here in st petersburg here's what's happening it's like hey here in florida this is a massive body of water and total different um ecosystems everywhere but these redfish are all seeing the same types of pharmaceutical drugs like antidepressants um high estrogen levels like it's crazy and like that's in my yeah. backyard you know and one thing yeah. now is that i like to say is that like with this like with our phones, we're so we're so disconnected in a connected world, right? So like we have oh, information yeah. at our fingertips to say, hey, here's what's happening right here in my backyard. I mean, I'm a stone's throw away from the mangroves and I know what's happening here. But how do I help that other than just sharing something digitally to people and saying, hey, here's the problem? Yeah. You know, am I am I helping yeah, yeah. with a solution? I mean, I don't even know if I could come up with a solution, but I know I'd be willing to help, you know? So to right. piggyback on what you said, like that one break in the chain can lead to massive uh, effect down the line that our we might not see, but our children might. Because I know my grandfather wasn't thinking about all the pharmaceutical drugs going in, in redfish, right. but here we are. Right, right, right. Well, thank you. But, you know, I just say, no, great story. By the way, 
you know, there are two parts to that particular story. And part number one is clearly humans are taking the drugs and then going to the bathroom. But part number two, believe it or not, a lot of people, if they don't finish their drugs, they just pour them in the toilet and they don't realize that, you know what, it's going back. So even there, most pharmacies will take drugs back and dispose of them properly. People, you know, don't seem to realize that, that you know, one person doing it isn't a problem. You know what I mean? A billion people, it's almost an uncontrollable problem. And so, you know, we can't solve that problem now, but we could, we could probably have the problem, mm-hmm. you know? So even there, you know what I mean? Just do what you can. And telling this story is, is doing what we can. It's a start. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's backtrack a little bit um, back into Ocean Alliance. And uh, let's talk about, you know, you, you've touched base a little bit on whale feces and how important it is to the ecosystem and the biosphere as a whole. But let's go into detail a little bit about, you know, your day in and day out um, with Ocean Alliance. And what does that look like? Copy that. Copy that. Well, first of all, let me just say, so Ocean Alliance is what we call a conservation science organization. We collect data with the idea of affecting change. There are great groups out there that just collect data, and then they don't know when that data will or will not be valuable. But we really try to affect data, to collect data to affect change. And at my end, I will admit, I love the mystery of whales. Let's say over 80 species of whales, you know, dolphins are just small toothed whales. The sort of the diversity, the complexity of their lives, I just find fascinating. So that's one of my primary motivators. But at the same time, um, you know, whales are fascinating at at a number of levels. But as I almost started the conversation, um, whale research is expensive. It's hard to do. And one of my catchphrases I say endlessly is that talent is global, but opportunity isn't. And since I'm now officially a graybeard, you know, what I'm trying to spend more time to do at Ocean Alliance is almost become more of a, a science facilitator. Do you know what I mean? When, when, when Dr. Payne discovered with his associates that whales sing songs, it captured hearts and minds. Do you know what I mean? Now we've, I've spent my life working in 20 countries around the world, seeing the potential, seeing the interest. And I'm now, how can we help people in an industry that is expensive? I mean, oceanography is almost a, prerogative of the privileged. And for me, at least, um, my great interest now is in drones, you know, with these affordable hovering drones, there's an enormous opportunity, you know, to really observe whales non-invasively. Remember, I mentioned also the observer effect, where the act of collecting the data can change the data. If you've got a drone 100 foot in the air looking down at a whale, I don't think they even know you're there and you can observe how they interact and so on. So um, pushing sort of new technologies is a great interest for me. Um, How I leave my daily life, the the bad news is I spend a lot of time fundraising and I spend a lot of time communicating. And my other incredibly boring catch line is we're Ocean Alliance, not Ocean Alone. So it's building these collaborations and helping people and, and moving forward. And, and again, we have a, a publication that, that's just coming out on the use of drones to attach tags to whales. And these are small tags about the size of a, of a mouse. Do you know what I mean? And these are little computer tags that basically 
give us time, depth, speed, acceleration, orientation. And finally, we're going into the world, whale's world, you know, diving into the abyss with them, seeing how they live their daily lives with these little tags. So I love where the technology is going and these tags, and I'll give you some footage you can play, but these tags are also giving us incredible footage of, of animals interacting under the water. So, you know, we've got media, we've got science, we've got data, we've got exploration, we've got discovery. That's a good way to start Monday morning, you know? I would I would say so. And a, a perfect transition point to see what you guys have done um, with that technology. So let's go ahead and let you introduce what you guys have used um, these drones for and what it's called. Exactly. Okay. So I was actually working in the Gulf of Mexico in um, uh, probably 2013, 2014. And to conduct a whale health assessment, you need a biological sample. I'm sure both of you have been to the doctor and the doctor has said, I want some blood. Well, you knew what was going on. He still probably didn't like it. The whales don't know what's going on. And I spent about 20 years of my life chasing down whales with a small crossbow, getting a size of skin about the size of sort of a pencil eraser. Do you know what I mean? Skin and tissue. And that was my biological sample that, that I could use for like a non-invasive health assessment. You know what I mean? Now, you didn't get them to pee in a cup? I did not get them to pee in the cup. And certainly if somebody wants to work out how we can get a whale to do that, but uh, there, there's um, the imagination can go right. There's an but opportunity you, there. There's definitely an opportunity there. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right. Going to need a big cup. cup. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. Uh, but um, so, so the problem was, in many ways, we were sort of chasing whales down to biopsy them. And it's back to that observer effect, you know, if um, Arnold Schwarzenegger came racing up to you in a big motorcycle with a leather jacket and a big gun on his back, even though he might be asking you where the nearest ice cream store is, you would probably be like, what the hell is that? You know, and, and your behavior would be changed. Okay. So these whales don't know what's going on when you come up, get close to them and then hit them in the back. So on one level, it was almost a financial perspective for me. I wasn't getting the samples I needed. So I'd have to go back to our funders and say, I'm not collecting the data. Well, then they won't fund the data collection, and then we won't know the answers, you know, or the problems. So I was very frustrated one day down in the Gulf of Mexico. A whale had dived just out of biopsy range, end of a long day, and actually I got covered in a cloud of whale snot, which was fairly sticky and smelly and, and gross. And... um with that, as a biologist, sticky, smelly, and gross typically means productive. And I thought, wow, maybe we could collect whale snot, you know, to do a non-invasive health assessment. And my my hobby has always been building, you know, airplanes and crashing and drones and helicopters. So I thought maybe could we fly something into a whale exhalation? And here we came up with our drone that we call Snotbot. And it's basically that. And I'll give you a video clip. But Snotbot is a small drone with Petri dishes on it. And we fly up to the whale. And whales are what we call explosive breathers. They're breathing out at like 60 to 80 miles an hour. So they're sloughing off little bits of skin and the sort of biological primers in their bodies, whether they be hormones, DNA, or microbiomes. And we're getting all of that on these Petri dishes. And we just fly over the whale 
collect the exhalation, bring the drone back, and bingo. And the whale doesn't know it's been sampled. Imagine you went into your doctor's office, you know, opened a magazine, read the, read the magazine. The doctor comes out and says, Ethan, Koji, you guys are good. Go home, pay the bill. You'd be like, okay, I like that. A non-invasive visit to the doctor. That sounds amazing, especially for me. <laughs> well, the other thing quickly, though, is because the drones are, are, are fast, I could fly over to that whale, get a sample, fly over to that whale, get a sample. And often the whales, we've sampled a whale almost a kilometer away from the boat. Yet in the past, the boat had to be within 30 feet of the whale. You know what I mean? So just the whole logistics of time, cost, energy. And I'm flying this $2,000 drone, sample back, sample back. So you're getting more data for less money, along with, as you can see, incredible footage. That's right. Yeah. Cause you can capture it all while you do it. Exactly. That's beautiful. Exactly. And I, yeah, we saw some of those clips you sent us. I'm excited to throw those in there for the viewers. Um, you know, you mentioned 80 species of whales. Do you have a favorite? Do I have a favorite? Wow. I'll tell you. Well, um, uh, am I going to get myself in trouble? No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, get yourself I in think, trouble. That's the best yeah. part of the show. <laughs> no, no. Well, I think I think what's interesting is um, I, I didn't mention this, but a lot of people don't realize dolphins are just small toothed whales. So whales are split up into sort of two groups, okay? Which is the odontoceti, the toothed whales, and that is like orca, uh, sperm whale, pilot whales, beaked whales, dolphins, um, and so on. And then the baleen whales or the mysticeti, which is a blue whale, bowhead whale, fin whale, right whale, say whale, um, and so on. And the, the mysticeti are these tend to be the filter feeders with these baleen plates, like combs that hang down on either side of their mouths and they sort of gulp and then wash through the baleen plates and then swallow what they get. And then the tooth whales tend to be more predators, you know, after squid or fish or, or whatever. So, you know, as a biologist, the, the, you know, a blue whale almost defies understanding. Do you know what I mean? You know, the tongue of a blue whale probably weighs seven tons, you know, so the whole biology, you could, Ethan, Koji, you guys could get in like the right ventricle of a blue whale's heart. So the largest animal that's ever existed on planet Ocean, you know, bigger than the dinosaurs, the blue whale. So I like the blue whales because of that, but not my favorite. Then some of the beaked whales, which are these very odd whales that have erupted teeth and some of them on the front, they're diving down into the abyss. And we just don't know a lot about them because they're so sort of elusive and mysterious. And then again, blind pink dolphins in the Amazon. What? What the heck is going on there? You know, blind dolphins. So, but to, to answer your question, finally, I think sperm whales, you know, Moby Dick, I think that's sort of my favorite, favorite one, because they're probably the largest brain. So the largest and most complex brain on planet Earth or planet ocean does not walk on the land. It swims in our seas. And what's interesting, or one of the many interesting things about sperm whales, is sperm whales are actually eating squid. And we know they're eating squid. And guess what? I've, dumped into sp I've jumped into sperm whale poo with my little net 
to, to catch the squid beats that are sinking quicker than the rest of the poo. So I understand what the whales are eating and little bits of poo in my beard, you know. Um, but so if, you, if you think, of, yeah, but if you think about it, um, squid are almost sports cars. Squid are like a Ferrari. They're fast swimmers and they're jet propelled. So when they want to escape, they just, you know, so they're, 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 they're like a Ferrari. A sperm whale is like a school bus. And I don't care what engine or what tires you put on a school bus, a sperm whale is averaging out to eat about 3% of its body weight a day of squid. So how is that school bus capturing 3% of its body weight a day in Ferraris? You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense. And I hope that analogy works for you. And by the way, they're diving down like half a mile and swimming along five miles and then coming to the surface. So the energy involved, if you had to swim across a one-mile river every day to get lunch, dinner, and breakfast at a pizza place, there better be a pizza place when you get over there, you know? And with the whales, there probably isn't. So how are the whales finding the food? How are they catching these rocket ships that are squid? and so on and so on. And are they eating the giant squid? I mean, there's one theory out there that the big squid are eating the little squid, and then the, and then the sperm whales are eating the big squid, and the beaks that we're seeing in the stomach and the feces of the whale are actually the beaks that are coming from the stomach of the big squid. Do you know what I mean? So you see how these mysteries sort of unfold or, or fold up, and but it's exciting. But sperm whales, yeah, they're... they're you know, diving down a mile deep, you know, thousands of tons of pressure per square inch, you know, I, I don't, you know, in the in where it's pitch black. Wow. I can hear, anyway. I can hear the, uh, I can hear how excited you are about sperm whales. Um, to tie that into Snotbot, ha, are they explosive breathers as well? They are. Although I tell you that, you know, you brought up a very good question. What's interesting is most whales blow upwards. Okay. So they blow straight up. And originally, when I designed Snotbot, I had like a bar coming down with a Petri dish. But what I realized is the whale is swimming, if I say the whale's swimming along like this. So when it exhales, the exhalation is more like an arc. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's got so a trajectory actually, pattern to it. Yeah. So Snotbot literally just flies like behind the whale at the same speed, and the arc of snot comes into the drone, which is why the Petri dishes are now on the front of the drone and on the top of the drone not on the bottom. Now, it's interesting with sperm whales. Sperm whales, um, their, their nostril has almost moved to the front of their head, okay, to the left-hand side. And actually, when they exhale, they're sort of blowing forwards. So believe it or not, when we collected snot from sperm whales in the Azores, it was much harder, but I was having to fly backwards. So the whale was swimming towards me, and I was flying backwards to sort of get the snot onto the dish. And again, what was interesting there is that, yeah, I mean, an average, it's tough to say an average, but most species of whale will come to the surface and they'll blow three or four times a minimum before they dive. So for me, I've got the drone ready. The whale comes up, it surfaces, I see the first blow. I go out, I'm often there by the second blow, and hopefully I'll have one or two more blows to catch the blow. When we went to the Azores and I saw these 
wimpy little sort of forward blows. I'm like, oh, man, we're dead. This is not going to work. But what's interesting is sperm whales are diving for 45 minutes to an hour. So guess what? When they came to the surface, they would blow 15 times. So I'd have an opportunity to have one blow, I got a little bit. One blow, I got a little bit more. One blow, I got a little bit more. Do you know what I mean? So again, it's so interesting because there always seems to be a balance. There always seems to be a way to adapt and, and, and make the system mm-hmm. work. And non-invasively too, which is incredible. Non-invasively. Um, another, yeah, I mean... I, another yeah, question I have for you, because um, this is sparking in my mind as you're, as you're speaking about it. When it comes to getting samples... You know, you're, are you collecting samples all in the same Petri dishes? And then does that like interfere? Do you, do you not want to have a, a separate sample for each whale or does it matter that they're all on one dish, if that makes sense? Yeah. No. So um, the answer is yes. And then we'll move on to the next question. Perfect. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, so what's interesting is, is typically we'll just want to do one animal. Do you know what I mean? And to be clear, we tend to have six dishes. So there's one, two on the left side, two on the right side, and two on the top. So when I say I've got one sample, that's typically six Petri dishes covered with snot. And I close two of them, and those two can go for microbiome. I close these two, and they can go to DNA. Close these two, they can go to hormones. And we can repeatedly, on one surfacing, even on other surfacings, you can get samples from the same animal. I mean, recently in Baja, we did what we called a focal follow, where we tried to stay with a whale for a day and collect snot during the day to see, are the hormone levels changing? Are the microbiome, you know, what is changing over the course of time? So generally speaking, you want to just have one animal. And there are other observers observing the drone, but what you tend to do then is choose the most upwind whale not the most downwind whale. And if you do choose a downwind whale, you try to find it in a situation where the other whales have dived. There are situations where it's okay to get sort of a collective exhalation, but to dive as deep as we can, we're typically more interested in the individual. And nine times out of 10, you know, even if you and Ethan went out socially for an evening, I'm sure there'd be some point where Ethan was on his own somewhere else and we could sort of, you know, I don't say we want to collect any of his snot, but we could collect, you know, get get his opinion on something. You yeah, know what I'm saying? You're right. I end up on my own more often than not on some lackluster adventure that gets me in trouble. Well, they, well, I've, I've been there, but anyway, <laughs> not the best analogies, maybe, but I'm trying. Um, I, it's still a good one. Um, another question on Snotbot: Have you guys ever lost a drone because um, the exhalation is so explosive? You know, we haven't lost it due to the exhalation. And I will admit, and I'm going to give a shout out for DJI, the the drone company. We've had some of these drones. And by the way, to be clear, that whale snot, um, you know, sometimes there's water as well. So it really is salty. So So every time this drone goes through an exhalation, it's getting doused in salt spray. Now, I'm sure if you doused your computer, five times a day in salt spray, probably after a month it would be gone. We've flown some of these drones hundreds of times into these salt spray, and they just keep going. I'm just amazed 
by the technology. At the beginning, I did look at like a saltwater, water-resistant drone, but then everything had to be sealed and batteries and it was heavier and it didn't fly as long. And I thought, you know what? If I can get a $2,000 drone to last one expedition, which might be three weeks, that's probably not too expensive a, a, a you know, a, a loss. Although now typically we, we find, we typically use these drones for about six expeditions and then we retire it to only work regionally. But we have not lost one due to snot. We have lost one due to human error where somebody put on a propeller blade incorrectly or something like that. But, um, no, generally, again, this is what's so good about, if I again talk about DJI, is the user interface is easy. Do you know what I mean? I'm sure sometimes when you get a new, I can't think of an example, I don't know, a new vacuum cleaner or whatever. It's like, there are so many options and how do I use this thing? And, and I think DJI, the product are great, but they make the user face easy. And that's what we want. We want people using these tools. I want to be able to give you guys a drone and say, hey, fly out of Tampa and see what those dolphins are doing. Now, by the way, don't do that because you need a permit to do that. But you know what I'm trying to say? You know, if you make a tool easy to use, people will use it. And these tools have turned out to be incredibly robust, even though it was the farthest thing from their mind when they designed these drones that we'd be flying them into whale snot. It's still so badass. That's what you guys do. <laughs> and so attaching the Petri dishes doesn't doesn't interfere with its flight time or its trajectory? I don't think so. No, I mean, that's a great question with reference to flight time. I will tell you one interesting thing, though. So when we fly into the exhalation, when we fly back to the boat, we fly backwards because we so don't want the wind. Off. Yeah, we don't want the wind pushing off the snot. And I have seen people now... They've developed sort of petri dishes where it will close, but I have six dishes, and I would rather have a system that's never going to break down. Do you know what I mean? Which is to your point, we just Velcro it onto the drone, as against a um, a different system. So again, what what's cool about Snotbot, you can probably see here. Here is the here is the drone. Okay, I love and how it's got, branded. That's right. You've got Petri dish, Petri dish, Petri dish, Petri dish, and two at the top because of the arc of the blow. And literally, it really is just Velcro. So we just go like that. And then, you know, these two dishes close up. And that can just be sent to the lab for analysis. And then when we're ready to go, we do clean the drone down with hydrogen peroxide to get rid of any other, um, any other, um, you know, DNA hormones. Then we just stick the next dishes on. And off we fly. And it's just very simple, you know, very easy to do. And just, there you go. We've got Velcro on the top, you know. And uh, again, it, it's, it's um, you know, Koji, you brought up your phone earlier on and you were talking about sort of using the phone. And I'm hoping we can get more apps designed, you know what I mean, that, that might be, might be, might give people easier access to sort of citizen science in the future because at the end of the day, we are all affecting the environment at some level just by living our lives. So if there was a way for all of us just to give something back, we really could sort of change the world. That's a great point. Agreed. So here is an example of of like the data tag. They just held on by suction cups, you know, and um, – they're really pretty simple. This one doesn't have the antenna on the back, but when you sort of drop it on a whale, you know, it sticks on the whale. So there we go. Okay. How many mad side, 
What do we talk about me not taking myself seriously? I don't know. I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a giant hickey on my head now. But but it really just it really just works that well. And we just drop it down onto the whale and it sticks on and we've had them stay on for as long as um seventy two hours. But even just a day in the life of an animal, you know, day, night is is more than enough. Most people have probably heard of tracking tags, you know, and that just tells you where the animal is. This one, these are hydrophones up on the front, these little nodules, they're, they're high-frequency hydrophones. So we've got what is the animal hearing? How is it vocalizing? You know, how is it living its daily life with this sort of non-invasive tag? And to get the data, unfortunately, when the tag comes off, all the data is stored on the computer. So we do have to get the tag back, which is, you know, can be exciting. <laughs> can imagine that. Well, yeah. As we uh, move to wrap here, um, I wanted to see if you had uh, one crazy or insane story that you couldn't really tell um, through other media outlets um, that might, might inspire the next generation or or maybe uh, have someone laugh a little bit. I mean, boy, I don't know. I'll, I'll think about that as I'm talking here. But, but I would say, um, you know, Snotbot has changed my life. And in many ways has changed how a lot of people do whale research. And again, I really am this master of nothing. I mean, I've been telling these stories for years, so it may sound very glib, but uh, you know, I'm just a, a guy that was trying to trying to find a way to to put his put all of my skills to use, you know. And um and how is exciting? I mean, I really believe if I can do it, anybody can do it. I just think the uh, you know, the availability nowadays, but um I mean some of the wildlife adventures I've had, I mean, I've been, it's been pretty amazing. But, um, you know, on some of the less pleasant, I will say, as I mentioned earlier, we're really interested to know what whales eat, okay? And to know what they eat, you know, you need to collect their defecation. But certainly with sperm whales and actually other whales, the squid beaks and bits of sort of cartilage from fish sink heavier. So when they defecate, someone's got to jump underneath the poo with a little net to get these little things that are sinking down. And the bad part of that is, of course, eventually you've got to come back to the surface. And, you know, when a 50-ton animal does a quarter of a ton poo, it, it's... um you got to yeah, swim through the an, shit. It, it's an epic event. That's right. Yeah. So um, here's to... Here's to us all swimming through the shit and making more sense of it. I love that. I love that. Um, well, all right. We'll go ahead and we'll wrap here. Can you let our audience know um, how they can find you guys um, and get in contact with you? Absolutely. First of all, please do check out our Snotbot Instagram page where we have all sorts of video clips, you know, of Snotbot tagging and collecting exhalation. And our website is a complicated one. It's just whale.org. So it's a whale singular, W-H-A-L-E dot org. So you can go onto the website and we have info at whale.org if you've got questions. But, um, you know, think outside the box and uh, be part of the solution as against part of the pollution on planet ocean, not planet earth. Incredible. Well, you guys heard it here from Dr. Ian Kerr at Ocean Alliance and Snotbot. 
It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Uh, we can't wait to possibly work with you in the future and uh, see maybe one of your expeditions in real life. Um, it was great today. Thank you, Dr. Ian. Fantastic. Now, gentlemen, my pleasure. You know, my work only has value if we can get the story out there, capture hearts and minds. And we may have scared a few people off, but maybe we've excited a few more. So you just keep what you're doing. Okay. Will do. Thanks, Dr. Kerr. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Wild and Unprotected podcast, brought to you by Wildscape Productions. Follow us on social media at Wildscape Productions. For more information on our documentary series, Shoreline Stories, visit wildscapeproduction.com. Stay tuned for our future episodes, as we have so much more in store for Wild and Unprotected.